Hey listeners, please support the Business of Pharmacy podcast by checking out our sponsors at bizofpharmpod.com. That link is in the description. You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Blair, for those that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about today. My name is Blair Tielemeyer. I am the founder of Pharmapreneur Academy. I've been working really as a business development consultant, specializing in programs and services that are billable through a pharmacist collaborative or a standalone type agreement. Most of these practice models are focusing on preventative care and medication-related conditions. Today, what we're talking about really is the future of pharmacy and how we can begin to step into the vision of what we have for our profession moving forward, specifically looking at the psychology behind maybe what are some things that hold us back as professionals, and then how we can begin to overcome some of those self-limiting beliefs. It seems like the biggest problem with any change is having golden handcuffs, especially when there's tuition payback and the kids start coming and things like that. It's hard to leave your security. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely... You know, the golden handcuffs are, are I think, inherent for any position. You've got that. I spent all this money on my degree, and now I'm thinking about doing something that doesn't even require a necessarily a, a license. If we're talking about health coaching specifically, there's this that, like, I can't let go of the degree, the license, the the box in order to reach for something new. And that's why I talk a lot about the identity shift, because for me, I mean, definitely I've been there. I've tried to talk myself out of things so many times. I ended up having to really create a new word to describe myself. And this word pharmapreneur was something that I created to kind of help me shift into that, the new version of what I wanted my career to look like, to have more flexibility, to be able to work in a context as a consultant that that was not something I had ever seen anyone in pharmacy school do. It was very scary to kind of chart this path for myself, but also exhilarating. And it was one of those things that I didn't have everything mapped out. And that was really hard for me. And I think will resonate with a lot of pharmacists that they're like, oh, just give me the protocol for building my business. But it's like business is an act of self-expression and very difficult to, to do that if you don't know who you are and what it is that you're expressing. So I tell people whenever I, I don't want to have a conversation about what I do for a living, I'm sitting on a plane and someone's like, hey, what, what do you do for work? I just tell them I'm a pharmacist. Because if I don't want to continue that conversation, that kind of usually people have this preconceived notion of, oh, I know exactly what a pharmacist does and who this person is. So I oh, needed to kind of, yeah, I needed to like create this more interesting way to describe myself that invites curiosity. And I actually coach my clients to do this as well, is what would you call yourself if you had to rename yourself? You know, if you were to choose your title, what would that look like? With marketing, Blair, you've read all these. Marketing said that you're not selling a hammer to somebody who wants to hang a picture. You're selling the whole. And if you go even further than that, you can say, well, you're not just selling a whole to hang a picture. You're selling the feeling that the picture's going to bring somebody, stuff like that. That can get kind of corny. Sometimes you'll watch like a 
TV and I think like Hampers is good for this. They'll show like all this beautiful stuff and all of a sudden it's like Hampers at the end. And some companies, I know Apple can do that and Nike and maybe Pampers can do it. But sometimes it's like, ah, that's kind of a stretch. And with pharmacists, that's an interesting question. If you ask pharmacists who they are, what do they come up with? And sometimes it's sad because... There's some people that, let's pick on the PBMs, there's some people who have said, you're worth this. This is your worth. 20 cents on something. And it makes me think of someone who's had trauma as a child and their dad is telling them they're a good for nothing kind of thing. And it's like, somebody else doesn't give you your value. But on the other hand, if they're king, it sort of is a value there. It's tough. It's tough to walk this line. I just spoke with a pharmacist. She's a pharmacy owner in California. And I've worked with her on and off for probably about five years. And when she first came to me, she really wanted to do something in women's health and creating a program where they were doing first hormone testing in women's health. Now, eventually building out more of a community that are for women that are going through menopause also to connect these women with support systems to each other. So I see what she's creating is her pharmacy as kind of a destination for health and wellness that she's attracting women that are her age, that are like her. She's her own avatar. So she's building out the program that she wishes she had when she was going through menopause. And I think if we look at our own personal stories, where we've come from, you know, I've been healing through postpartum depression. And that is a subject that's near and dear to my heart in women's health because I've been through it. And I understand what that looks like. And for us to kind of take off that expert hat and just be a person that has also dealt with some hard things, whether it's personally or family members, that is the spark that I see when I have conversations with pharmacists that lights them up, that they go, oh, I get it. Like, I can connect with these people. I can connect them to the information, but also the support and the community so that they're not being treated in isolation for some of these issues, especially in mental health issues. There's so much, there's just so much isolation, especially in the medical community. It's, it's difficult to get to that true healing if we aren't willing to go a little bit deeper with our patients and with our clients to understand Okay, well, maybe this isn't an adherence issue. Maybe this is a self-worth issue, or maybe this is a unhealthy relationship with food issue, or whatever that looks like. Not going to know exactly what program to create to offer to these people unless you ask them what their needs are, or you've been through it yourself and you have an understanding of what steps you personally took to get through this. I think there's certain conversations where pharmacists probably don't want to go certain places with people. Even if you've been through it, you might have your fears of what's going to come out in the midst of that conversation. Am I going to break down into a uh, puddle talking to someone about it for the first time or something? Yeah. And that's why we have to do our individual work before we can really hold space. And I'm not suggesting that we be therapists to people, but it is to me, but I, when I spoke at that conference that I mentioned, one of the things that came out is there was a pharmacy that said, oh, we're, we're dispensing tons of Wegovy and people are interested in weight management. How can I support them further? And I said, well, that's a great question. Why don't you ask your customers, ask your patients what their needs are. And if there is underlying depression or anxiety or, you know, something else going on, it's going to be very difficult for them to lose weight no matter what, 
Is that something that you could provide a referral to community resources or at least help people become aware of this? This could be something that you could look into. So I don't necessarily think that we need to have all of the solutions to have this conversation with people, but to just be aware that there could be some other underlying things going on that we could then refer and make recommendations. Blair, where is the drop-off? Let's say you have a lot of successful clients that you coach and so on, but somebody who is maybe not as long-range, I guess success is a little bit more subjective, but let's say they're not long-range. What is a drop-off point and why... You hear it a lot in the conversations I have. It's kind of cliche. Pharmacists love to prepare, and it seems like there's so much preparation. And it almost seems like if a pharmacist could just have somebody pay them a dollar for something, just turn the corner. But I imagine, I'm just thinking this, that a lot of pharmacists, they don't turn the corner. And when you don't turn the corner, you got a lot of ideas and all this stuff building up. But I imagine they don't turn the corner. That's that putting yourself out there piece that, that is super scary. We've said, like, don't go after people. We're not salespeople. We're not marketers. We hang back. People come to us. That's how I think medicine has traditionally worked. Yep. But when you're creating... This type of program where you're essentially making an offer in a clinical program, that's when people kind of go, I feel a little weird about selling mm. or, or being too salesy. And that's some mindset work, I think, that could be an opportunity to get into the psychology piece of it is... If you believe that what you have to offer is valuable and your solution can actually help people, why would you feel weird about offering it? Why would you feel weird about telling someone that you could help them and in exchange for your time, this is what it's going to cost? And so I think those people that I see kind of never really like launch, they're like getting ready to get ready to get ready and they're in that, I'm going to get this certification yep. and then I'm going to do this and then I need to have a website and then I need to have a really convincing marketing flyer and a cool logo and all this stuff. I'm just like, that's putting the cart way before the horse, in my opinion. I think the step that many new entrepreneurs miss is the market research part of it. You've got this idea that you think is brilliant, that you yeah. think it's going to work. But how are you testing and validating that idea in your target market to get a better sense of like, oh, maybe they want less information and more personalized recommendations. So, so I think that putting yourself out there and having these we don't even call on sales calls, but just having these conversations with people that are in your ideal target market, just to ask them the questions of what are you struggling the most with? What have you tried before that's that's not worked? What have you tried that has worked? What would be most helpful in helping you to get result that they're after is yeah. to, to that goal? It's not... I really just want my A1C below seven so my doctor yeah. doesn't get on to me. Like, no, that's not what our patients care about. They care about, well, am I going to be able to function better at work, to have less brain fog, to have less stomach issues, to sleep better at night, to be more present in my day-to-day, -to, -day, to be less stressed and anxious, to whatever that looks like. How does it apply into their life today? We all are guilty of it. And you see this in different industries. The financial planning industry has to convince people to plan for the future. And the healthcare industry has to convince people to plan for their future self and what their health looks like. 
when we take that conversation into the present, what are you dealing with right now that I can yeah. help you with? The question really changes the answers that you're going to get. I'm all for that, Blair, on testing a business and just being able to put stuff on social media. And the next morning you can find out what has better ideas. And I'm so thankful that people don't have to throw their everything to something. They don't have to build a store and put up a sign and do all that anymore. With that said, there's kind of a beauty to some of that. Like you and I talk, Blair, you're working from home now, but in the past you've been in an office and on the downside, it's more of a commitment. On the upside, you probably felt different when you were in the office. Part of that money went to just the feeling of maybe scared, but also kind of proud. Yeah, it's such a, I don't know, strange thing to put yourself outside of your comfort zone mm -hmm. and to grow into and lean into that discomfort. For me, so here in the state of Arkansas, we passed something that allows pharmacists to prescribe birth control. I'm thinking, oh, wow, every pharmacy in the state is doing this, right? No still not being implemented. So my question there is really, what is the challenge of creating that space, creating that, carving out that time to offer the clinical service, to create an appointment-based model? And these services, they can be delivered via telehealth in my state. So it may be different in different states, but many of the programs that I've seen, especially the health coaching type program, can be delivered virtually. So creating a space and creating that time, carving out that, okay, I'm going to be doing consults for women's health on Wednesdays from two to four and leaving that spot open for people to book, to have that time and space to say, okay, I'm spending that time. I'm setting it aside. I'm sacrificing this time. You have to create that in your pharmacy or in your life or whatever, so that when you're putting it out on social media, you're putting out this offer to help, that you've already got the time to take on these new clients. Because if you don't create that space, then yep. you're just like, kind of spinning your wheels. This is kind of a cop-out, but sometimes in pharmacy, I think what might be hard about shifting gears is there's some businesses where, let's say that you're a real estate agent and let's say you're working X hours a week and the market starts to drop. Now maybe you're only working 25 hours a week, you're making less, there's not as many calls, you've slowed down. But with like the PBMs, I think the problem is a lot of pharmacies, when the market's dropping out and so on, it's not like the real estate agent who's now gone down 15 hours, the pharmacies are working 40 hours, now maybe 45 because the profit's being slashed, but they're busier than ever. The extra time is not there. And so in this example here, that's where the real estate agent might say, I've got 15 hours a week. I'm seeing this, but thankfully I've got more time so I can set this up. I can study this. I can do a new career, whatever. With the PBM stuff, it's like the cliche of the boiling water with a frog in it. It's like you're getting busier and getting less. And so I know it's just an excuse, but that's where I think a lot of people are. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that many people in healthcare are not happy with the reimbursement rates. And yeah. even looking at pharmacist provider status. So even if we got provider status tomorrow, we're still going to have this problem. We're still right. we're still going to have workflow inefficiencies. We're still going to have a model that favors the volume-based dispensing. Which, to your point, Mike, I mean, the more you fail, the more money you lose. At some point, yeah. there needs to be a 
kind of a line in the sand of I'm no longer accepting that or drawing that boundary or whatever. And I'm not a pharmacy owner, so I can't imagine how difficult it is to make that change because you you've got so much money tied up in the inventory and the employees and the store and all of it that it really is a paradigm shift that we would be able to charge for cognitive services or to create something another service line so i'm definitely definitely considerate of the reimbursement and how challenging it makes everything in healthcare. The cost of healthcare is going up and up and will continue to do that unless there is some kind of shift that begins to happen that focuses on more preventative services. And I think that who who best to offer that preventative conversation than, than a pharmacist? But It's going to take a lot of people committed to these conversations to kind of turn that tide. So instead of waiting for, well, I wish the organizations would do more. I wish the pharmacy schools would change. I wish the PBMs would stop being so greedy. There is an individual element that we all have choices in our lives and in our professional careers. Making a different choice is extremely difficult. And I don't want to minimize that at all because when we first started talking, we were saying that people get to that point of getting ready to get ready, but then fail to ever launch because that's the psychology of what truly is holding us back as a profession is that individuality of what does it mean to you to have a successful professional career as a pharmacist? What does that look like from an individual standpoint? And I mean, I think we can absolutely all get there, but many pharmacists are coming to me saying, I want to leave pharmacy altogether. And I'm like, well, you have a lot to offer. So what are some things that you are interested in that you've been through personally that you want to bring more into your practice of pharmacy. And that's when people start lighting up and they start going, oh, well, actually, I do a lot of breath work and it helps me to relax or I've done acupuncture and it's helped with my pain and it's helped with me standing all day long. And so they start telling me all these things that are more kind of natural and holistic methods. And I said, well, why don't you talk to your clients about this stuff? And they say, well, because I feel like because I'm a pharmacist, I can only talk about medication. And I said, well, I don't think that the Scope of Practice Act necessarily prevents pharmacists from having conversations about health and wellness and well-being. So is that something that if we were to rewrite what the practice act or the scope of practice looks like what are some things that you would include if you were to rewrite your job description which is essentially what entrepreneurship allows you to do what would you design for yourself what kind of mental struggles do you see a lot of people come to you with stuck trapped fearful angry i think there's the cynical pharmacist has like the biggest following of people on Facebook. And I think pharmacists have a right to be angry. I think that the direction of our profession is something that we really feel kind of powerlessness over. And many of the pharmacists that are pursuing entrepreneurship or per- just pursuing kind of new opportunities in, in non-traditional routes, so not necessarily entrepreneurship, that can be entrepreneurship or whatever. I think what is most helpful for people that are in that space of feeling powerlessness over their career trajectory is to take a little bit of 
time to lean into those feelings of I'm angry because of this or I'm frustrated at this or I'm feeling anxious or depressed or whatever because of this. So that self-awareness is really what that is. I'm not a proponent of building a business just because you hate the job that you're in. You can always get a different job. And that is a choice as well to to change positions. So there's a lot of career coaches and people out there that are helping pharmacists to kind of reimagine their career. I've always done it through entrepreneurship, which takes a little bit more of that self-expression, that self-awareness of what do I want to create for my own personal brand. And I think there, there are a lot of pharmacists that are struggling with anxiety and depression and burnout and all of these things because we keep that expert hat on Mm. we think oh i should be able to think my way out of this or i shouldn't be Mm. able to figure this out on my own so we don't reach out for help and we don't reach out for support and we try to diy everything to to our detriment sometimes i think one of the best things that happened to me Well, it's funny how I even phrase that because about 15 years ago, there was a huge legal thing with people that were pretty close to me. It wasn't related to the business, but a huge legal thing. And it so shook me that I had no choice then to get professional help the next day and get some meds to calm me down and have that safety net of whoever I could find. And my family saw me crying and my wife and things like that. It hit me so hard that you might as well have written on it. All right, you're going to get all this professional help now. There's no other way to do it. I didn't feel suicidal, but I just felt it was so, so much pressure. I just felt I wasn't going to exist at all. It wasn't like I wanted to die. I just felt like no human could go through what I felt I was going through. I think the benefit of that, though, is it made me depend on professional help. And I think what happens with a lot of people is you think that you made it through pharmacy school and you're still able to go to your job. You hate it, but it's that slippery slope. No one ever gives you what I was given to say, get help like today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that anyone that's out there listening to this and needs that support, we really we want to offer a community for people to to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm struggling. And I've had several clients that that I have referred to to seek mental health services. And a lot of it was around this overachieving, people-pleasing, perfectionist kind of personality of like, I'm going to hold everything together because I'm Superman or Superwoman or whatever. And yet I feel on the inside like such a fraud, like such a failure, like just really struggling. So when someone comes to me and they say, I'm burned now, I'm angry, I'm trapped, I'm anxious, I'm depressed. I'm like, that's wonderful. And thank you for sharing that. So now we've diagnosed the issue. Then we can start talking about those changes that you want to make and that you want to bring in. I was working with a client, this was a couple years ago, and she kept talking about like not having time to work on her business. And and so we, we would get on the phone on Tuesdays, like, what did you get accomplished this weekend? Well, it was my cousin's daughter's birthday party, so we had to take the whole family. There's just always something going on with a very large extended family. And my question for her was, do you really need to be putting your energy towards those types of things when you're telling me that your priority is building this business? Right. Would your family members understand if you said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it to my extended niece's birthday party because I'm working on something that's really important to me. And sometimes that's a difficult conversation to have, especially with family members that, you know, that 
that don't like when we create boundaries. I had this one worker and she had a different cultural background. And she would say to me, hey, I can't come in tomorrow because my, you know, fifth cousin once removed had a baby or something like that. I'm like, are you kidding? I mean, I guess that's a German in me. And I think that's important to understand if I'm working with someone like, what are your values and is family values one of your biggest priorities? If so, creating special time for that, but also holding space for your own time, because I think especially as women, I see us giving so much of ourselves to our family that we're not keeping anything that really fuels us. So I had a conversation with, it was a discovery call. It was someone that I did not end up working with because she was not in a place. She was not ready. And the question, you know, I asked is like, well, what do you like to do for fun? What are you passionate about? And it was so sad. She said, well, I really used to enjoy decorating my house, but I really haven't even had a chance to slow down and enjoy that in the past few years because I've been so busy at work. And so we're getting so much of our personal worth and satisfaction from our work. If the work doesn't feel meaningful, if the work doesn't feel purposeful, then you can see how that links to my life isn't meaningful. My life has no purpose or direction. I was just watching something on YouTube the other night, and this guy, I think he talked about four things. It was uh, neighbor's job and something else. I forget what it was. Anyway, if you look at even the last few years, what has happened with a lot of COVID, a lot of church breakdowns and neighborhoods, you know, you pull your car in and get the door closed before anybody sees you. But your needs as a human don't go away. And so his thing was exactly what you're saying, Blair. Those three things kind of get funneled into that last quadrant of job. And it's like, jobs aren't really meant to do that per se. And that's, you know, maybe where people say, well, then I'm going to go off and be an entrepreneur. It's like, yeah, but how many entrepreneur family breakdowns are there 100 hours a week and their family breaks down and all that. So there's a spot for job, but it's not everything. Yeah, I'm seeing this a lot in the corporate kind of startup space is a, a bigger focus on workplace culture and developing developing leaders that have more of these soft skills and that are able to provide, you know, a space. And this is definitely not something that I'm seeing in the healthcare uh, corporate space just yet, but I'm seeing it in other spaces. So my hope is that there will be some trickle-down effects as we're talking about employee satisfaction, company culture. It's such a focus in pretty much every industry besides healthcare. I have a theory that one of the things that's really driving a lot of the reform and a lot of the opportunity for us in healthcare is there are so many healthcare professionals that feel like they're being used as a warm body with a license and they're interchangeable and their their company doesn't care about what they're doing. It's just as difficult to create a business that you can have that balance of work, of personal and professional, that you can find meaningful work in a company as an employee, just like you can find it as an employee. On the other side, you cannot find it as a, as an entrepreneur if if that too much of the self-worth and the achievement and the perfectionism and the people-pleasing are coming from outside of you versus being self-determined and self-motivated. Why is that in healthcare we're seeing that? Why would workers not being taken care of? Is it the quick growth in COVID and things like that? That's a great question. I think it's such a, the healthcare system is such a nebulous 
disconnected kind of thing where we've got the insurance players and we've got the pharma companies and then we've got the actual licensed professionals that are providing the services. And connecting the dots of caring about the people in those roles hopefully becomes something that these healthcare businesses are seeing as directly tied to their profits. Because like we said in the beginning, there's not a lot of incentive to change unless there's enough agitation that's happening. There was a study I saw on LinkedIn posted by a LinkedIn news editor, and it was essentially that pharmacists during the pandemic and the year after had about a 43% increase in job transitions. So what I'm seeing is more difficulty attracting talent, more difficulty around talent retention in the healthcare space. And it, it does create this opportunity for, well, if we were to reimagine what practice looks like, what a truly patient-centered healthcare model looks like, because we're all patients. I mean, we're, we are the professionals, but we're also the patients in this system at multiple points in our lives. So we're seeing both sides of these issues. It's really about standing up and articulating what we see these problems in, specifically in our individual professions, because the physical therapist and the, the primary care doctors and the orthopedists, we don't talk to each other very often. If you look at your LinkedIn feed or your Facebook feed, chances are everyone that you're connected with is in your industry. There's not a lot of interprofessional communication. It's almost like we're kind of stuck in this algorithm that's showing us people that look and think and talk and do exactly like we do. And we're getting kind of stuck as we're trying to solve these bigger issues with innovative ideas. It's important to have outside insights. And I think that's where the networking and the conversation about who are you as a pharmapreneur or your elevator pitch, you know, that you call yourself. I think it's important for us to understand what we stand for and be able to speak to that and have a vision for what we would really like to do in our career in healthcare. And hopefully, I think that will begin to change the perception of what pharmacists can do. If they hear pharmacists talking about health and wellness and preventative services and health coaching, that creates more opportunities for pharmacist jobs. And that's ultimately what my mission is in advancing the profession of pharmacy. It's creating new jobs and new opportunities for pharmacists. It's sad for me to say, but I think pharmacy is a big career where the profession that gets people into school is not necessarily the same one as what they see in reality on the outside. And I don't mean to say it can't be. I mean, you can go through college and have this dream of change and being an entrepreneur and entrepreneur and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying it can't be, but I can't think of a profession that might be sold. Let's face it. You always think the grass is greener on this side of your diploma than that side. But pharmacy, I think, is a pretty big disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think in school, we talk a lot about patient care opportunities. And then in reality, we Get, get out in the wild and it's wild. It's type as fast as you can, answer as many phones as you can, check people out from the register, get the window as fast as you can. It is very much a different reality than what students are being told to expect. Mm -hmm. So I think it is always helpful to give people an honest look at what you're spending your time doing and 
if there is something that we need to look at from an educational curriculum point of view, what would that be? What would be helpful in terms of helping these students see that opportunity and maybe see that disconnect and somehow try to kind of back sell in something that that can be something that's driving our profession forward, that's evolving the profession. We've been at a crossroads for like 30 years and I'm like, okay, which way are we going? We've been standing in the same spot for years. And since they made the D degree at the end of the 90s, pharmacy jobs haven't really changed a whole lot. It's almost like the cart came before the horse kind. It's like, we're going to get this training and hope it changes. Absolutely. So highly trained, underutilized is the words that when I'm talking to people outside of pharmacy, the words that I use to describe pharmacist. That's not a knock on the profession from me. I'm just saying that the colleges have to change. Already in college, the first two years is kind of like junior and senior year of high school. You're getting your English and all that kind of stuff. It's like, why is that? And why maybe wouldn't community pharmacy be two years of pharmacy and like some schools do, three years of business and then two years of entrepreneurship with the background of pharmacy? There's a ton of stuff to teach, but to throw people out there overeducated without those kind of skills, I think that's a place where you could do some really cool things and maybe keep the tuition debt down too. It's not a real pretty thing to come out and want to start a new business when you're $150,000 in debt. So it just seems like you've got to, I don't mean face reality, like we have to show them that it sucks to be a retail pharmacist. I'm not saying that. I'm saying reality of like, these aren't there. That's why it behooves all of you to study more business and entrepreneurial and let's make a business and let's spend a year at a medical non-pharmacy place and get to know the leaders and CEOs. It just seems there has to be like a reality check with that. Yeah, I think that there's so much opportunity for pharmacists to create these opportunities, to create these new jobs. These aren't necessarily jobs that people are applying for, but they are something that like going to work in a local primary care office, for example. Yeah. Reaching out to a local physician and saying, hey, what are you dealing with in terms of prior authorization and medication-related issues that that I could be helping out with as a consultant, even a once-a-week type deal where you could be on call as a referral or via telemedicine or whatever, just to know that this opportunity even exists. I remember in school, we had an entrepreneurship elective and I didn't take it because reading through the syllabus, it was about how to own a brick and mortar pharmacy. And although I've always had this entrepreneurial drive, I knew it wouldn't be brick and mortar. I knew somehow it had to be online. It had to be something that that I could be able to work from home kind of thing. And I just, I never saw myself in that traditional brick and mortar entrepreneurship class. So I didn't take it. And so in asking people what they learned in that class, there was a lot of case studies on Walgreens and that kind of thing. And I'm like, that's not personal branding. That's not networking, business development. Those aren't those skills. They're a different set of skills, not that they're good or bad, but these career development skills, I think, are probably maybe more helpful for the students. And to be fair to the colleges, we humans tend to think that the past was kind of like it is now. I look back at my Amazon account from, let's say, mid-90s, and now it's like I got three Amazon trucks at a time waiting to pull into my driveway, you know? And you look at the mid-90s and it's like, oh, I bought three things from Amazon that year. You know, I bought two books and a yep. CD or something. You just think it was always part of it. So without crucifying the schools, it's like 
things have changed and, and I know they're changing too. Well, what do I know? I haven't been to the school to read the curriculum and stuff like that. I'm sure it's coming along, but it has to be closer to reality. Yeah, I think preparing students for what they'll be looking for in the next 10 to 20 years, that's where I would like to see pharmacy put out a statement even on this is what we believe the future of the profession looks like. Here's our goals for number of pharmacists. So if there really is a shortage of pharmacists, what does the data look like in the next 10 or 20 years? Because we're seeing less students applying to pharmacy school as well, because what they're hearing from pharmacists who are in the profession is, yeah, there are jobs available, but no one wants them. And that's not enticing to young talent to enter a profession with that big of an investment for something that that's maybe not exactly where you want to be professionally. So I I think preparing students for looking at AI technology, for example, how is AI technology going to revolutionize the clinical experience in the next 10 years? In the next 10 minutes. 10 minutes. It's so crazy. I was talking to one of my friends and she has a child that's been going through some really difficult mental health struggles. And so they actually contacted the suicide prevention hotline. And she said as her child was communicating back and forth, she realized that the child was speaking with a bot. The child was speaking with an AI that was asking them questions around what thoughts are you having, like articulating those. And she said, do you realize that you're not talking to a human on the other end of that? And the child said, yeah, actually, I think I kind of prefer it that way. How things have changed where I had to call up the phone company or something. It's like, I need help. I press the right button or something. And then I held and I'm like, oh, crap, I got to talk to a human. That's changed from like two years ago. I always knew when one of my employees was on with a talk thing, because they'd be like, yeah. yes, 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 you know, trying to get it to- Representative. And then it would be, blitter, blitter, blitter. they have like fake bubble noise, you know, for that. And after seeing Chad GPT, after seeing that, it's like within a week, I'm like, I don't want to talk to a human. It's amazing. It really is. I mean, I think that there's so many- things that are changing rapidly. I've been talking about 3D printing. At what point are we going to be 3D printing people's medications out for them? I mean, there's so many things that that will change, that technology will change in the next 10 or 20 years. My question is, if you're not a walking encyclopedia, if that isn't really necessary, what then do you want to be doing? What conversations need to be had by a human? What, what is the value of a human connection? When is that appropriate and when is it not? This weekend, I watched 3D printing on TikTok. They printed a safe and the safe then had hinges for the door and the dial, I'm sure it wasn't deluxe, but the dial to do the combination all printed as one unit. They didn't put these things together. It was all printed as one with a hinge and a combo lock on it. It's just amazing. It really is. I mean, the stuff that they're doing with 3D printing, with AI, like I don't even think that I would venture to say what I think the next 10 or 20 years looks like because I, I don't think anyone knows. Blair, you've got one of your uh, three ring circus things going on this Friday. Yeah. The, so that's the Elevate Summit. This is the seventh year that we've had it. So we started really the very first virtual pharmacy conference in the industry back in 2017. This year, I am super excited because it's more about networking. It's more mm. about business development and connecting with people that can help get you to that next level in your business. 
I'm bringing in one of the facilitators that I used for our healing medicine retreat in Costa Rica. And he's going to be leading us through a session to help develop what is that bigger vision we have for our careers or for our business. Hmm. He's going to be doing that Friday morning, Friday afternoon. We're going to have a mastermind with some hot seats. And then Saturday, kind of continuing that conversation around how to set up an offer. And so I'm actually going to be sharing a template that I use and have been using for the past eight years to create a proposal for a client. So we started off this conversation really about how it it sometimes can feel icky to put yourself out there and to make an offer. But if you can get down on paper, we call this the ODT proposal structure. If you can get down on paper the objectives of what your program accomplishes, Mm -hmm. including what the client's results are, not just our hope for what result that they're going to get. Since we started it in 2017, we've probably trained over 5,000 pharmacists from Mm -hmm. around the world through this event. So it kind of continues on what we've been talking about today is this psychology behind what may be holding us back as individuals. And if we were to remove some of those challenges or barriers, those limiting beliefs that we have about what we're capable of, then being able to envision like what is the potential for Mm -hmm. what we could create with our knowledge, with our background, with everything that we have to build something new that not only serves our clients in a new way, but feels purposeful and meaningful to us as well as professionals. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Blair, always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for what you're doing for the profession. I think somebody who's helping lead our vision is near the top or at the top of the important things we talk about. So keep doing what you're doing. And I look forward to talking again soon. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me and for the advocacy work that you're doing with this podcast. And I think the more pharmacists that we have that are using their voices and standing in their truth and wanting to be heard in terms of an individual vision for what our profession looks like moving forward, kind of creates this movement towards what's best for our profession moving forward. So thank you. I really appreciate always being here and and it's always a pleasure. All right, Blair. Thanks. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.